Chapter Two of The U Boat Hunters by James B. Connolly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Chapter Two Navy Men. The foregoing occasion was the first of several naval spectacles staged by Theodore Roosevelt during his presidency to show the public that we had a growing navy, and not too small a navy and a navy that, ship for ship, need ask for no odds in its equipment, at least. More than any president we ever had did Theodore Roosevelt work for a big navy. To no president before him, in our country, did the prospect of a great European war loom so near, a war which meant our participation, not so much through any will of our people as by the pressure of happenings from the other side. Hence, the need of the country for as large a navy as we could get together. With an eye for this future need, President Roosevelt asked for four battleships a year. There were men in Congress who believed that to talk of war was foolish. There would be no more war. So, instead of four, Congress gave him two. And the famous Big Stick had to come into play before they gave him even the two. During these years, I had the privilege from President Roosevelt of cruising on United States warships, gunboats, destroyers, cruisers, battleships. Later, through the good offices of Secretary Daniels, I became acquainted with submarines and Navy airplanes. The warships were an interesting study, and the life aboard a warship then was even more interesting. For after all, men, not materials, were the chief thing. Almost any fairly well-trained bunch of mechanics will turn out a pretty good machine to order, but there is no turning out good men to order. Only good living generations can do that. If it was a matter of machinery alone, then the Prussian idea would have this war already won. But that alone cannot prevail, can never prevail for the long run. It is the spirit which must win. The personnel of the Navy officers and men, seemed always so much more interesting to me, that for one hour I spent in looking over ship equipment, I probably spent forty in observing the men. And when you are locked up in ships for weeks or months, with a lot of men, you must, where your heart and mind are not closed, come away in time with some sort of knowledge of them. And what sort are they? Well, they are nearly all young, average age about twenty-one years, and they come from anywhere and everywhere, from the farms, the prairies, the corners of city streets, and they have been many things, farmhands, carpenters, mechanics, barbers, trolley-car men, clerks, street loafers, college boys. Some are terribly sophisticated in worldly ways, and some so green, of course, that the wags have frequent chances to keep their wits on edge. Some have come with the plain notion that if a fellow has got to fight, why then the Navy offers the most comfortable outlook for a fellow. During this war, it especially offers it. Dry hammock every night, no mud, no cooties, and three hot meals at regular intervals. But many are there with the bright hope of some day pointing a 14-inch gun and sending a relay of 1,400-pound shells where they will blow something foreign and opposing high as the flying clouds. Blowing up ships and people may have once seemed a terrible idea, but a few weeks in the community of a warship, with its matter-of-fact, professional manner of discussing such subjects, soon brings them around to common seagoing notions of the matter. Four years ago, at Vera Cruz, our modern navy had its first taste of war.
It was only a light touch of war, and there was no doubt of the outcome. But in little affairs, men may be tried out, too. Through somebody's blunder, for which somebody should have been jacked up, our blue jackets were sent up in solid sections to occupy a large open area on the Vera Cruz waterfront. Standing there in solid columns, not knowing just what was going to happen, but feeling to a certainty that something stirring was going to happen, and to happen soon, they stood there grinning widely and waiting for the ball to open. It may have been their childish innocence, it may have been their untutored ignorance, but when that sheeted rifle fire first burst from the roof of the naval college, and a solid squad or two of our lads went down, and following that the snipers began to get them in ones and twos and threes, when that happened there was no distressing confusion in their ranks. When, later, it became necessary for the Prairie and Chester to fire just over their heads to batter the walls of that same war college, it made no difference. The ship's gunnery was rapid and excellent. They knew it would be. And when the shells went whistling through the walls of the second story, the Marines and Blue Jackets stood under the first story and let them whistle. Plaster and bricks from the shaken walls came tumbling down upon them. They ducked beneath the falling mortar, some of them, but they all took their shells standing. They are not the sailors of classic tradition, these battleship lads of the twentieth century. Every man to the age he lives in, it must be so. The old phrase, drunk as a sailor, meant, in most men's minds, drunk as a man-of-war's man. I was born and brought up in a great seaport. Boston, and my earliest memories are of loafing days along the harbor front, and the husky-voiced, roaring fellows coming ashore in the pulling boats from the men-o'-war. Fine, rolling-gated fellows, in from long cruises, and flamingly eager to make the most of their short liberty. Great-hearted men, who gave truth to the phrase, and spending his money like a drunken sailor, and knowing, usually, but two inescapable obligations, to do his duty aboard ship and to stand by a shipmate in trouble ashore. Almost any of the old-time policemen of the large seaports can tell you many fine tales of the riotous hours along the waterfront in the old days. Such is the passing tradition. The present lad of the Navy is creating a new one. For one thing, he no longer gets drunk. That is, he does not get drunk by divisions. To illustrate... During that great steaming stunt in all maritime history, the crews of our sixteen battleships with their auxiliaries around the world, all naval records were broken in the number of enlisted men allowed ashore. Every day, in large foreign ports, saw four thousand of our blue jackets and marines allowed shore liberty. Now, consider the case of the first foreign port where liberty was granted, Rio de Janeiro in South America. And what happened in Rio was what happened in other ports. It was five weeks or more since leaving home, and during that five weeks they had been for twelve days steaming along one of the hottest coasts, Brazil, in all the world, the tropics, and it was summertime once they were south of the line, and in all that time no chance for an enlisted man to get a drink of any kind of liquor, no beer or light wine even, no matter what the intensity of the thirst which may have possessed him. Now he is suddenly thrown ashore with his pockets full of money. He has only to go to the paymaster and draw pretty much all he pleases. By actual figures, the men of the battle fleet, about 13,000, drew $200,000 in gold to spend ashore in Rio, about $15 a man. 
for five or six weeks, not a drop to drink, and all at once four thousand of them thrown daily to roam into the midst of five hundred grog shops, with their pockets full of money, and no restrictions placed upon them. Except one, they must be back to their ship that same night. I was a passenger with that battle fleet, and night after night I stood on the great stone quay in Rio and watched them returning to their ships. On no night did I see more than forty or fifty who might be said to be soused. On no night did I see more than a dozen or fifteen who had to be thrown into the accommodation barge with the dead ones, the helpless ones who were so far gone that they had to be carried up the sides of their ships from the barge which made the last rounds of the fleet. Now, I would like to make an observation. Gratuitous, but perhaps of human interest, and pertinent right here, I think if we took four thousand lawyers, or doctors, or authors, or car drivers, or clerks, four thousand of almost any sort from civil life, and locked them up so that for five or six weeks in a warm or a cold climate they could not get a drink of any kind of liquor, no matter how great their fancied or real need, and at the end of that five or six weeks took the whole four thousand of them with their pockets full of money, and suddenly threw them into the middle of all the grog-shops of a great city, I do think that more than forty, that is, one per cent of them, would be found soused, that is, if we had means of locating them all at the end of the day. The heroic sailor of tradition has passed, a sailor of another kind, but just as efficient and just as heroic in another way, the way of his day, is rapidly creating another tradition. The lad who in the lusty days of his youth can thus hold himself in check is a pretty good product of American development. He pretty generally passes up the grog shop, but he visits the art galleries, the museums, the cathedrals, the KFCs and YMCAs ashore, takes books from the library on shipboard, buys postcards and mails them home to let his friends know of the great things in the world. On that world cruise referred to, the men cleaned Rio de Janeiro out of 250,000 postcards. I doubt if many of them, on the first try, could lay out on a topsail yard in a gale of wind without immediately falling overboard, but they don't have to lay out on topsail yards nowadays. They do have to shoot, however, and they can shoot. Lay a gun screw of them behind a big turret gun and watch them make lacework of a target at 11,000 yards. The main question is, have we the spirit today? As to that, no man having yet devised any apparatus wherewith to measure energy of soul and mind, it is difficult to prove to whoever will not believe, or does not in himself possess the germ, the existence of this thing that may not be measured by foot rule or bushel basket. The belching of powder and the roll of drumhead do not prove it. We can always hire men to do that, and to do it well, and yet, to be present at the review described in the preceding chapter was to experience the thrill that may not be measured, to note how the enthusiasm of the occasion seemed to be animating the crews, to share in the feeling of pride which mantled all cheeks, and, ship after ship slipping past, to feel that pride of fleet intensify until we echo the cry of the commander-in-chief whose enthusiasm for all that is good for the nation is unquenchable as the president said it was a glorious day no doubt of it men had met and there was kinship in the meeting from that auspicious opening in the morning when the clouds seemed to dissolve for the express purpose of allowing a fresh washed sky to enter into the color scheme of the beautiful picture blue dome 
chalk-white and sea-green warships, green and blue and white-edged little seas, until that last moment at night when the last call on the last ship was blown and to its lingering cadence the last unwinking incandescent of the fairy-like illumination was switched off leaving the hushed and darkened fleet riding to only the necessary anchor lights on the motionless moonlit sound who witnessed it all might not doubt the existence of that spirit which in conflict makes for more than thickness of armor or weight of shell we went to war and it was with an immense confidence in what they would do that I heard of the sailing of our first group of destroyers for the business of convoying ships and hunting U-boats on the other side. Ships were up to date, and officers and men knew their business, and there was something more than knowing their business. Other groups of destroyers followed that first one, and a lot of us were wondering how they were making out. They had sailed out into the Atlantic. That we knew. But what were they doing? We who knew them believed they were doing well. But how well? I thought it worthwhile finding out. I went to Washington and from Secretary Daniels and Chief Censor George Creel secured necessary credentials and through the War Department the word which would put me aboard a troop ship. It is only justice to Secretary Daniels to say that he granted me all aid even though I told him I would probably work for Colliers on the trip for Colliers, which had been pounding him editorially. What I learned of this game of escorting ships and hunting U-boats is in the chapters which follow. End of chapter 2 Recording by William Tomko.